Thanks, Corey. Dr. Mays as well. Um, any of you see our girls' volleyball teams play this last week? <laughs> I mean, uh, Michelle Carter with two spikes from the back row. Outstanding. And we beat Azusa Pacific, and we just literally numbed Christ College into submission. I think the last game was 15-2. to two. Is that right? That was great. We ought to congratulate him with a good hearty round of applause. And, uh, and then our uh, soccer team went down to Point Loma on Saturday. And uh, it was kind of an interesting thing. I was talking to some of the team when they came back. And uh, they said it was interesting when they went out on the field. Some of the players at Point Loma said, the Masters College, huh, tough game. And just sort of mocked them. And uh, didn't cross the center line for the first 20 minutes. We had three goals before they knew what hit them. And uh, somebody asked, I think it was our coach, Mark Schubert, uh, or I guess one of the players, uh, how many freshmen were on the team. And I don't know how many freshmen started, Mark. Nine. And the guy had this sinking feeling that he was going to see us again for the next three years. <laughs> so we ought to congratulate our soccer team for a great win. Now, it's going to be a big week this week. We have home soccer game on Tuesday and a home soccer game on Wednesday. And what about volleyball? Friday night against St. Mary's. <laughs> Folks, this is the Reformation. we got to be there. <laughs> a lot is at stake. <laughs> All right, that's marvelous. As you can see, behind me, we have... Uh, put up the purpose statement of the Master's College, which I sort of briefly introduced to you uh, in a chapel last week. And we want to work our way through that statement. It's a very important statement. We want to keep our focus and just kind of lay down the things that we really have in mind. We went over it in general, but we're going to look at it in specific in the next uh, series of chapel messages. Notice it says the Master's College exists to advance the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping men and women. And I want to talk to you today about this matter of equipping. Basically, I want us to look together at one text of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 4. So get your Bible there and turn with me to the fourth chapter of Ephesians. There is here a very, very basic text of Scripture dealing with the matter of equipping. In Ephesians 4.11, the Apostle Paul writes, And he gave, that is, Christ gave, and I believe he gave them to his church, some apostles, some prophets. They had the chronological priority, New Testament apostles and New Testament prophets. And then he gave some evangelists and some teaching pastors for the equipping of the saints or the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Now that introduces us to the idea of equipping or the idea of the authorized version perfecting the saints. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Be ye perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. And that puts the standard very high. 
That statement introduces to us the basic will of God for men. God wants men to be perfect. He wants them to be fully grown. And what that really means is he wants them to be like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, that's made very clear as you read through the New Testament because the goal of our salvation is to conform us to the image of Christ. Someday when we see him, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is, First John 3 says. So the goal of equipping a believer or perfecting a believer is to take a person who is estranged from God and make them like Jesus Christ. That's what equipping is really all about. We are to be made to become like Jesus Christ. That's going to become clear to us as we look down through this passage. Now let me suggest to you that in the matter of of our perfection, of making us the way we ought to be, there are three ways to look at that. First of all, we could say there is a positional perfection. There's a sense in which when you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are instantly made perfect. You enter into a positional perfection. Hebrews 10:14 says he has perfected forever them that are set apart or sanctified. In other words, the moment you were saved, you were made right with God, positionally before God, you stand complete, you stand righteous in Christ. Salvation provides in the finished work of Christ, Christ, the price for sin, makes you right with God. You are positionally perfect. That is, when he looks at you, he sees you in Christ as righteous. That's your position before God. That's your standing, to use another word. There's a second kind of perfection. We could call that ultimate perfection. Someday you will actually be perfect. The time will come when you enter into a real perfection in every way, shape, and form. In Hebrews 12:23, it says, The spirits of just men made perfect. There is a sense in which our standing is perfect now. There will be an ultimate perfection. Someday we will be exactly like Christ in terms of holiness and righteousness. We won't become God, but we will manifest His virtue, His purity, His righteousness. That's ultimate perfection. There's a third kind. Positional, ultimate. The third kind, and the kind we want to talk about, is practical perfection. And this is the matter of sanctification. We are to be moving toward perfection, moving toward being equipped to be like Jesus Christ. This is in our practice. The idea to pull them all together is simply that what you are in position, you are to become in practice. Because that's what you're going to be in future reality. So we have been made right with God through Christ positionally. We're going to actually be right in every sense ultimately. And in the meantime, we are to move to make that position a reality in our lives. So when we talk about perfection, we're talking about the practical area of our life. The goal of this college is to assist in developing you into Christ-likeness in the practical sense. You are already covered with the righteousness of Christ positionally. You will be made like Him in glory. But for now, you need your practice to conform to your standing and your ultimate goal. And so here in Ephesians 4, Paul really gives us the strategy for the church. First of all, we meet the people who really are involved in this strategy in verse 11. 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the teaching pastors, or if you prefer, pastors and teachers, all of these men given to the church were given for the purpose, verse 12 says, of equipping or perfecting the saints. They are to perfect us, to equip us in that practical area. Now the word perfecting, katartizo in the Greek, means to be fully equipped. It means to be full grown. It means to be mature. It means to be complete or it could mean to be perfect. It is used of mending nets, uh, something that is broken made whole. That's, that's the kind of idea that's used in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where it talks about perfecting the saints not in an individual sense but collectively tying up all the loose ends so that they are properly knit together as a unit. What we want here then is to see in our lives as a student body, as a fellowship of Christian people, the movement toward Christ-likeness. And that's the issue. We don't want to just conform you to a certain kind of outward code. We want to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. That is the objective. We're not talking about sinless perfection in this life because that's for the ultimate perfection. What we're talking about here is increasing Christ-likeness, becoming more and more like Christ. In 2 Corinthians, at the very end of that epistle, there's a wonderful benediction. It says, finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect. What a statement. Finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect. Boy, you really set the standard up there, right? But we can't settle for any standard lower than that. Our goal, my goal, the goal of everyone who's a part of leadership in this institution is the same. The objective is to conform you to Jesus Christ. Nothing less can satisfy the God-ordained calling of those in spiritual leadership. In Hebrews chapter 13, you have another benediction, and this sort of sums up the objective here as well. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The goal then is to make you perfect in doing His will in every good work. Making you like Christ, living out, manifesting the will of Christ. Now, that's the goal. How does God do that? Well, several ways. Your perfection or equipping you for service to Christ involves many things. Let me show a few of them to you. Look at James chapter 1. And I want to just call your attention to a very basic matter. In the first part of James, he talks about the place of trials and the importance of trials and their purpose. But I want you to notice James 1 just the first uh, little part from verses 2 to 4 of that section on trials. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into many differing kinds of trials, knowing this, that the trial of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have a perfect work that you may be perfect and whole, lacking nothing. Now here's the first element in perfecting the saints or equipping the saints, and that is trials. Trials. 
The Spirit of God will bring into your life trials, difficulties, obstacles to strengthen your spiritual muscles. Things that you want very badly, you'll not receive. Difficult situations will face you all your life long. And those are God-ordained opportunities for growth. In fact, a friend of mine used to call them uh, God-ordained opportunities for growth. G-O-O-G. Everything that comes your way in life by means of difficulty demonstrates your strength and your weakness. You face a trial and immediately you're going to know the character of your faith. If you get angry at God, if you get angry at everybody else, if you lose your cool, if you become irritable, you have demonstrated that there's a flaw in your faith, that you're not all you ought to be. And that's part of revealing that to you, that trial. Through that trial, you gain the strength to deal with that issue. And so it's a strengthening opportunity if you handle it right. If you don't handle it right, it becomes a temptation or a solicitation to evil and ends up in sin. Let me turn a little bit of a corner, but not much of one, and have you look at 1 Peter 5 for a moment. Not only are we going to have trials, difficulties in life, but we are also going to have things that really cause us to suffer. Not all difficulties cause us to suffer. Some do. But Peter sort of widens this idea in 1 Peter 5.10. The God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, make you perfect. Establish, strengthen, settle you. Some of the trials you have are going to be trials that involve you in suffering. Deprivation, pain, anxiety, both emotional and physical. But that is the, the, the way God brings about your continued perfection. The goal of the Holy Spirit in your life is to perfect you. Having begun in the Spirit, if we can play off of Galatians 3, you will be made perfect in the Spirit, not in the flesh. The Spirit's work is not only to begin your life in Christ, but to bring it to perfection, to bring it to Christ's likeness. He will use trials because that's how you strengthen spiritual muscle. That's how you grow. He will bring suffering. Frankly, folks, when you get into suffering, that's where you learn to depend on whom? On God. Suffering drives you into intimacy with God, and that's the context in which growth takes place, most dramatically. So the Spirit of God will bring that along. 1 Peter 2.2, backing up a couple of chapters, says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow by it. Now here's another element of growth. The Word of God. The Word of God. The Holy Spirit will bring the trials. The Holy Spirit will bring the suffering. I don't feel we have to do that. We're not in the world to make you miserable. The Lord will bring those things about in your life. We are here, those who are in spiritual leadership, to teach you the Word that you may grow. 2 Timothy 3 says the same thing. That all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. And then he lists several things that the man of God may be what? Perfect. Completely furnished unto good works. And that's again the idea that the word is the agency of perfection. 
So you bring together the vicissitudes and the exigencies and the struggles and the trials and the anxieties and the troubles of life. And those are what God uses together with the Word of God being taught to you by faithful men and the combination of those things in a willing heart, in an obedient spirit, produces perfection. It moves you along. So looking back then to Ephesians, let's re-examine that first thought that gifted men are given to the church to teach the Word of God, to model the Word of God, so that the saints may be perfected or equipped. That is very, very basic. I don't want to spend too much time dealing with apostles and prophets and teaching pastors and evangelists. I think that it's sufficient to say for our time this morning that apostles, of course, were the ones called by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the ones, for the most part, who were given the responsibility to articulate the Word of God, uh, to write it down. They were the ones who laid down the foundation of Christian truth and doctrine. That's why in Acts chapter 2 it says the early church studied the apostles' doctrine. And they were followed up by prophets who reiterated that, sometimes spoke direct revelation from God. Not all their ministry was revelatory. Some of it was reiterative, repeating things that had already been revealed. But their goal, in my judgment, was to speak to the practical needs of the church. And every time you see a specific about a prophet in the New Testament, it seems that he is speaking to some practical matter in the life of the church when some specific message is given. And so you have the apostles who gave the theological and the doctrinal and the biblical data, and you have the prophets who spoke primarily to the issue of application in the church. Another way to look, of it, look at it, the apostles were the ones sent out with the message. The prophets were the ones who, when a church was established, then became somewhat responsible for the ongoing of the teaching of the Word of God, such as we find in the case of 1 Corinthians, where the prophets are to be subject to one another when they speak to the church. And then they were followed chronologically by two other groups, evangelists and teaching pastors. So that the church today is really led by evangelists and teaching pastors. Teaching pastors being what we know familiarly as those who teach and preach the Word of God in the church. Evangelists being those who reach the lost. It's my own conviction that a church ought to be made up in its leadership of those two kinds of people. That it's much more important after establishing a teaching pastor to get an evangelist than it is to get a Christian education director. It's my conviction that what a church needs to be is a combination of people who are winning the lost and people who are building up the lost that are being won. And so training for evangelism is not, uh, is not teaching a guy how to preach ten sermons and, and buy ten suits and go on the road. Training for evangelism is teaching someone how to get involved in a community to reach the people where Christ is not named, who do not know Him, bringing them to Christ, teaching people how to witness and evangelize, and working alongside teaching pastors who will nurture and build up the people that this individual brings into the knowledge of the gospel. But whatever we say about those, it is obvious that encompassed in these leaders is the leadership of the church and the kingdom. And we believe the school is certainly a part of the kingdom and a part of the church. And the leadership here must be committed to this process of equipping the saints, of building up the saints 
so that they can do the work of the ministry. We are all committed to your spiritual perfection. Now, I want to talk about the progress to that perfection, particularly today, in just the little time we have left, about 15, 20 minutes or so. The progress to perfection in verse 12. Follow this, will you? Step one, the gifted men equip the saints. Step two, the saints do the work of the service or the work of the ministry. Three, it results in the building up of the body of Christ. So our God-given task is very clear. I know exactly what God has called me to do, and that is to give my life to the process of equipping the saints, building up the saints. It's not a matter of how many people can we have. It's a matter of what kind of people do we have. Now, you know, if you know anything about Grace Church, the Grace Church has grown uh, over the last many years. In fact, some of you probably were a little bit um, set back the first time you attended Grace Church because it's large. Uh, I want you to understand that the measure of a church is not its size. Not its size. The measure of a church is its capability to produce Christ-likeness among its people. You understand that? That's the objective. The measure of a school is the same thing because this is merely a reassembly of the church in another environment. And the objective here is not to have the greatest number of students. The objective here is not to have the, the highest intellectual level or even the most productive students in terms of monitoring their success economically or in the business world or even in the church. The objective is to produce people who are Christ-like. David said, I will be satisfied when I awake in thy likeness. That's the only thing that satisfies. That is the only thing. I can be very honest with you. Uh, preaching to a large congregation is a wonderful privilege. Having a radio program or a, a tape ministry or writing a book, uh, those are wonderful privileges. But what I live with every day of my life is the fact that I am constantly falling short of Christ-likeness. And no matter what amount of outward success I may have and what accolades may come from people, I know and I know the Lord knows that I'm not yet what I ought to be and I have to live with that all the time. So the pursuit of my life is I can't be satisfied with what's happening around me or I have a very shallow commitment to true spirituality. I will be satisfied when I awake in the likeness of Christ. That's got to be the desire of every heart to be fully equipped to be like Jesus Christ. We're not interested in just counting heads. We're not interested in just how bright our students are or how athletic they are or how musically talented they are or how skilled they are in the sciences or whatever. We are interested in those things, but far beyond that, in their likeness to Jesus Christ. This was certainly the passion of the early apostles. Years ago, I, I made this a focus of my own study. And it became apparent to me that Paul only had one thing in mind, and that was seeing his people made into the image of Christ. He said to the Galatians, I, I have birth pains until Christ is formed in you, as I said to you last week. He, he said about his friend Epaphras that he prays for you all the time, that you might be perfect in the will of God. I mean, that was always the objective and the goal. And all gifted men are given to the church to nurture the church to Christ likeness. 
I have never asked in all the years I've been at Grace that God would give us any more people. I already feel in deep trouble because I'm accountable for the ones I have and I know that we haven't brought them to be all they should be. The issue in ministry is always the nature of the people, the commitment of the people, the character of the people, not the size of the crowd. And you want to keep that in mind as you look at the future of your own ministry. Some of you young men I know are headed for the ministry and the temptation is always going to be to measure your success by the size of your church. That's not the measure. It's what do you produce of true spirituality in the lives of others by your example and your model. And the key to this is the Word of God, which is the thing that builds you up. Acts 20, I commit you, Paul says, to the Word of God, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with the saints. The Word will build you up. The world Word will perfect you. And God will bring the trials in which the Word works. So to begin with, we are committed to the fact that the gifted men equip the saints, which means we feed the Word of God, moving you toward Christ's likeness. Now, I need to say at that point something that you want to understand. You can teach people the Word of God, but not be concerned about their spiritual development. And we want those things to go side by side. People, you can come to chapel and to class, and it could go right in one ear and out the other, and you know that as well as I do. And it will very often, and it does even in my own case. The issue is, do I have the integrity and the honesty to admit that? And to come to grips with that? And sometimes it's hardest of all for people who've been around the church all their life. You've just heard it so many times. And you're so familiar with it that familiarity, in a sense, breeds contempt. And so it doesn't register. If that's the case, you need to check in on that. Because as much teaching as is going on, and as much aggressive action to endeavor to bring you into Christ's likeness, you've got to be a responder. And that means you've got to constantly be doing an honest inventory, and it starts with whether you're actually hearing what's being said. And then the second thing is, are you applying it? You're in a very favored position, you know. Not everybody is here at this school. And to whom much is given, much is what? Is required. And for all of the privilege comes a matching accountability. For all of the privilege comes a matching responsibility. To take that privilege that God has given you and maximize it for his own glory. So we are committed then to the equipping of the saints. That's so very basic. Second thing that I want you to notice in verse 12 is that having been equipped, the saints do the work of the ministry. One of the things that I believe with all my heart is that pastors don't do all the ministry. They equip the people to do the ministry. When I first came to Grace Church 18 years ago, uh, they said, uh, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to teach and preach the word of God. And I remember one of the elders said to me, I know you're going to do that on Sunday, but what are you going to do all week? And I said, well, most of the week I'm going to study so that I can teach the Word of God. He said, you mean you have to study all week in order to preach? And I said, I, he said, well, who's going to do the work? And I kind of smiled. I said, you. See, for most people, they think that um, the church is sort of a professional pulpitism financed by lay spectators. You know, you drop your money in the offering and buy the guy. Do the work. And if he doesn't live up to your standard, you, you dump him and get another one. 
But the ministry is not that at all. The ministry is equipping the saints, it says in verse 12, so they can do the work of the ministry. This has been one of the really fun things at Grace Community Church through the years. I remember when a guy came to me after I was there about a month, he said, you know, we need a tape ministry. And I said, well, that's wonderful. He said, I, I think you ought to start a tape ministry. I said, I, I can't start a tape ministry. I have too much to do. I said, if it's on your heart, maybe God put it there. You're probably responsible to God for, for that thought, and, and maybe you better do it. And he was, a, he was a medical doctor. He just sort of, uh, me, he said. I said, well, uh, you feel strongly about it? You've just said that. that. That sounds to me like the Lord's really laid it on your heart. Well, he went out and bought a couple of little machines. They were using reel-to-reel in those days and bought a little bit of machinery. And then another guy in our church came up to me one time and he said, you know, we need to have a tape ministry. We need to make tapes and, and get them out. And I said, that's great. Here's another guy that has the same idea. Why don't you guys get together? And that's how Gra- Word of Grace was born. And since it started, I have never had anything to do with it. I just go down there. People say to me, do you listen to your tapes? Only when I want to find out what I believe about something. I forget <laughs> well, how I interpreted something, you know. I don't know how I, what I believe about that. I could listen to my tape. Um, but I've never had anything to do with that. One guy came to me one time as a dear guy. He said, uh, you know, we need a bus. I said, that's a great idea. Lord, lay it on your heart. You ought to get one. He said the same thing. Who, me? I said, yeah. Well, the next thing I knew, he showed up with a yellow bus. He went out and negotiated, bought a bus with his own money, and there he was with the bus. <laughs> But, I mean, those are illustrations of how the ministry ought to flow. So, you know, the idea here is we want to input you and nurture you, and then you go out and do the ministry. You can't train people in a vacuum. You've got to be engaged in ministry. That's why we introduce to you things like, like the uh, outreach to the Santa Clarita high schools. I mean, that's ministry. And I'll tell you, where you really learn is when you're out there in the trenches doing it. And you've got to apply it. But we want to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Because the ministry belongs to all of us. You've been given spiritual gifts and callings and areas in which God desires that you administer those gifts. You have, you have talent. You have skills. You are a spiritual snowflake that God packaged like nobody else. And ministry out there can only be done by you to its maximum. God wants you to be engaged in that. So we want, to, we want you to have a vision to ministry. And ministry is, is simply committing my life to serving the Lord Jesus Christ in whatever way I can. It's not an issue of whether you're going to be a preacher or a plumber. Whatever you're going to be or anything in between, you need to see your life as a ministry. Which means reaching out to the lost and reaching out to the saved in any and every way possible. The word ministry is diakonia. It's the word from which we get deacon. It means service. Any kind of service. It can be the use of your spiritual gift. It can be the exercise of fellowship. It could be the one another's of the New Testament. Sometime in your devotions, go through all the one another's in the New Testament. Find out what you're supposed to do. Love one another. Admonish one another. Exhort one another. Rebuke one another. Reprove one another. Pray for one another. Edify one another. It goes on and on and on and on. That is what fellowship is. We talk about fellowship. We say, oh, we had great fellowship. What do we mean by that? We ate pizza. Oh, that fellowship, that's pizza. It's okay. Eat it. It's fine. I like it too. But don't call it fellowship. Not biblical fellowship. I grew up in a church where they had a place called Fellowship Hall. You know what that was? You had Fellowship Hall in your church? Usually in the basement. Linoleum. Shuffleboard. Deal on there. Little old ladies with their hair in buns serve red punch and stale cookies. You know what fellowship is. Real, biblical, Baptist fellowship. You've all been there. That's not fellowship. 
fellowship is koinonia. That's koinonas means a partner. That's the exchange of life. That's the mutual one another. That's how ministry takes place. I mean, you can walk around with very shallow relationships all your life or you can get involved in ministry. We're equipping you for ministry. Tasks for all of us defined by opportunity and by giftedness are to be fulfilled. So the gifted men equip the saints. The saints do the work of the ministry. What's the result in verse 12? The body is what? It's built up. It's built up. Practical unity comes. Maturity comes. And it comes through the input, teaching, and the output, ministry. As a, as a group of believing people like this come together and receive the input and mix the input with commitment and it results in output, the combination of that is the body is built up. It is built up. It is strengthened. Internally and externally. Internally because we all become stronger. Externally because people on the outside come to faith in Jesus Christ. So we are committed to the perfecting of the saints. So the saints can do the work of the ministry. So the body can be built up. Now you may say, I'm, a, I'm just one person. Boy, but you're crucial to this issue. You are here in order to be equipped for the ministry. And you need to be on that input perspective, receiving, receiving with an open mind and an open heart. And on that output perspective, you're here to learn how to serve. And you need to cultivate that as well. My prayer for you is that you will be the best learners and the best servants in perfect combination. Take every opportunity to grasp divine truth while you're here and mix it with commitment and every opportunity to serve and minister that's made available to you. Learn that life is ministry or you will become ingrown and self-centered and ultimately useless. Give yourself away. You are expendable for the advancement of the kingdom. The purposes of this are given in verse 13. Until we all come... In the unity of the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a what? Perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. People, this is it. We perfect the saints. The saints do the work of the ministry so that the body can be built up so that we can become like whom? Christ. So that we can come to the perfect man. So that we can be perfect. Be fully equipped. Be mature. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I wish we had time to dig into all of those words in that marvelous, marvelous statement. That's the purpose. That's the purpose. To become like Christ. Let me tell you how to measure your life. We are not like those, Paul says, who compare ourselves with ourselves. If you go through life comparing yourself with other people, you can always find people lower on every scale than you are. I mean, you can do that in terms of looks. You look in the mirror and you say, not much to look at, but you'll find somebody who's less desirable to look at. And you'll say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And that could cultivate pride in your life. You may have a, a poor grade in a class, but if you look long enough, you'll find somebody who got a worse one. And you can satisfy your own mind by saying, well, at least I'm better than so-and-so. And you can look at your spiritual life and say, well, I know my spiritual life is a bummer, but at least I'm not on drugs. 
You can say to your parents, well, you ought to be glad you got me, Mom. You know, I mean, I may not be Charles Haddon Spurgeon, but I'm not Anton LaVey either. I'm somewhere up the scale. So if you go through life comparing yourself with yourself, you're going to always have difficulty. Tozer said uh, it's like um, it's like trying to tune 400 pianos to each other. It's absolutely impossible until you get one tuning fork and tune them all to the tuning fork and they're all tuned to each other. And the issue in the spiritual life of every believer is very simple. The tuning fork for you is whom? Christ. And the measuring standard for you is whom? Christ and the virtue of your life and the character of your life and the morality of your life and the spirituality of your life and the service of your life and the devotion and dedication of your life and the commitment to fellowship and learning and growth must be measured against Christ. That's the only honest standard for a believer. Everything else lowers the standard. We are here to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so they can be built up to become like Jesus Christ. That's the essence of what he's saying here. And be no longer, verse 14 says, children, but mature Christ-like saints. That's it. That's it. And it's pretty simple, really. And yet it's absolutely impossible apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, right? We are dependent on the power of the Spirit of God to accomplish this. That's it. And there must be in our lives a commitment on a daily basis to be obedient to the prompting of the Spirit through the Word and through the inner man. I am going to do what the Word says. I want to follow obediently the Spirit and I want to follow His promptings in my heart. There must be that conscious submission to the Spirit of God on a daily basis because only He can affect this in your life. Let me show you that as we close by having you look at a verse I usually write under my name when I sign it, 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's a tremendous verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. Now watch this idea. Just look at me for a minute. Here we are, as believers. The veil has been taken off our face so we can see clearly the Lord. It's not like under the old covenant where certain things were veiled. We are able to see clearly the revelation of God in the form of Jesus Christ, right? God never was so manifest as He was in Christ. Is that not so? Every Old Testament revelation of God, in a sense, was partial. But in Christ, we see the blending of those attributes as they had never been revealed before. The vision is so... Uh, perceptible because he became one of us and so on our own level we perceive so as the veil comes off and we look at the glory of the Lord it says we are changed into the same what image now get this as you make the objective of your life and the goal of your life to be like Christ, 
you will then have to check in with that goal all the time. Looking at Christ, do I measure up? Do I measure up? Do I measure up? Am I there? Where am I? How far short do I come? Is that what Christ would do? Am I demonstrating, like Paul says to the Corinthians, the gentleness and meekness of Christ? Is this a Christ-like response? Is this a Christ-like attitude? As I'm checking all the time, daily, measuring my life against the standard of Christ, I am looking at His glory. I am gazing at His glory every time I do that. And, in so doing, I will be changed into what? The same what? Image. I will be moved from one level of glory to the next level of glory to the next level of glory that's moving me toward perfection. And who's doing that? Look at verse 18 again. Who's doing it? Who's doing that? By the what? Spirit of the Lord. Now, let me sum this idea up very simply. You spend your life with one goal, to be like Christ, to be equipped to be like Christ. That means that He becomes your standard. You constantly measure every thought, word, and action against Christ. That puts you looking at Him all the time. As Paul said to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, keep your focus on Him. So as you look at Jesus Christ all the time, gazing at His glory, which is revealed in every look at Him, you will become like Him because the Spirit of God, as you make Him your focus, will be in the process of transforming you into His image. You don't even need to focus on the Holy Spirit. You need to focus on the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. That's our goal. And that's the goal of the church, to equip you to be like Him. Let's pray.